Thanks for that, Josh. You know, it's so important uh, for a church to choose wisely its leaders, its elders. And uh, they have a pretty significant, you know, uh, responsibility to protect the purity uh, of the church and what's taught and so on. You see what's happening uh, when the wrong things are taught, like on our college campuses all over, you know, the world today. And so to be entrusted with the gospel and the truth and God's word and to be responsible to uh, protect it is a a pretty heavy responsibility. So I would encourage you to get to know these three nominees if you don't know them and ask them whatever questions uh, you feel are are pertinent. And then uh, I forgot to mention that uh, Angie called today and said everybody in church looks like they're so full of turkey we're not going to have coffee hour this morning. So... Just to let you know, there's no coffee after church this morning. I hope you all enjoyed Thanksgiving. It's such a great time, right? It's relaxing, and uh, it just gives that occasion to stop and really think about where do all our blessings come from? And uh, we have a God who's a very giving, loving, caring God. Okay, the last time we were together uh, talking about uh, hope and about the Lord's return, Uh, We were talking from Thessalonians about having a biblical worldview, an understanding of life and the world from God's perspective, from the Bible. And uh, the Apostle Paul, you know, uh, we're kind of working our way through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And uh, in 1st Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul's like, wow, this is a great church. And he lists all these things about the church and Chapter two, he says, you know, these are the kind of people that make up that kind of church. And so he's talking about the people in chapter two. And in chapter two, he commends the people in verse 13 like this. Here's what Paul says about the people in this church. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work now inside of you. The word of God uh, is living and active, right? And when it gets inside of us, it changes us. And Paul is so excited about these people because when they heard a word of God, it wasn't like they were hearing uh, anything else. It wasn't like they were watching TV and evaluating, is that true or not true? Or, you know, or I agree with that or disagree with that. No, they were like on their knees because this was the word of God. And they treated it differently than they treated all the other input uh, that was coming into their lives. And so uh, one of the ways that the word of God is active in us is the word of God forms what I like to call as a biblical uh, worldview, the way we understand our whole existence. And I think Moses is kind of a great example about this. Um, you remember we looked at Moses uh, a long time ago now, but um, you know Moses was born at a time uh, in Egypt uh, when the Egyptians uh, had a very anti-Semitic, if you will, uh, attitude towards the Jewish people who were enslaved in Egypt at the time. And so they came up with a plan. They were threatened by the number of uh, Jews that were, you know, in their country. And so they came up with a plan. Uh, all the midwives were to throw male babies into the Nile River 
so that they would weaken the Jewish population. And you remember that in Exodus chapter 1, you can read about that. Uh, so uh, Moses, however, you know, his mom, uh, when he was born, put him in the Nile River, but she made a basket for him and put him in the basket. And uh, eventually the princess found him and he was brought up in, um, in the Pharaoh's household. And so in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen is uh, trying to defend himself. He's the first Christian martyr. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, we read these words. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And here it is. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. So you would think that uh, Moses, growing up with that kind of an education, the best that Egypt had to offer, uh, would kind of have an Egyptian worldview, right? I mean, he grew up there in his formative years and had all that schooling and so forth. But the truth is, uh, Moses encountered God's word. God spoke to him, and it contradicted uh, his worldview that he inherited from his education and from his adoptive family, if you will, and so on and so forth. And so Moses had to make a choice. Am I going to believe God or believe the culture around me? Uh, who am I going to trust? Kind of like Josh shared in his testimony. At some point, you have to decide whether all the information that's coming at you from God is true or not, and if you're going to uh, take your stand on it. And so uh, Moses encountered God's word. And so while the Egyptians taught that the earth came from an egg, okay, uh, Moses wrote down that God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1. Egyptian astronomy claimed that the earth could give birth to the sun. But Moses said, no, uh, God created two great lights, the greater one to rule the day, the lesser one to rule at night. Egyptian anthropology uh, taught that man came from worms that were found around the Nile, along the uh, edges of the Nile River. But of course, Moses wrote, no, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. So Moses knew what the Egyptians simply didn't know, called the truth. And while the Egyptian views were based on speculation and human reasoning, Moses' understanding came from revelation, from God revealing himself and his truth to Moses. And all through Moses' relationship with God, God told Moses to write down what God was telling him. And so Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, uh, <clears throat> the Pentateuch, it's called. And uh, not only that, but then uh, kings after Moses were told to copy what Moses wrote down. And, you know, God himself wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets. Uh, and so we have uh, the written word of God preserved for us all the way through as we uh, think about uh, where we get our truth from. In Hebrews chapter 4, you're probably familiar with this uh, passage of scripture, uh, the word of God is living. I love that. If you think about different than any other book, when the word of God gets inside of us, it's alive. It's animated by the very spirit of God. 
And it has an effect on us, and it changes us. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Getting right down into the very heart of where we learn and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The Word of God gets past just our thoughts and gets down into our heart. It touches us in ways that uh, most literature uh, does not. And so the Bible really is a wonder, right? 66 books, over 1,500 years, one theme, the theme of salvation, that red thread that starts in uh, Genesis when God kills the animals to make skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness because of their sin, and uh, all the way through the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Day of Atonement, all the way to the cross, it's all about redemption through the blood or the life of Jesus Christ. And so how we treat the Bible, I want to suggest this morning, is so important. It's God's word, and uh, I want to say it's written for us to understand. Now, I know that sounds kind of like simple, but there are so many people when it comes to talking about the second coming of Christ who say, I just can't understand it, so I'm not going to bother trying. And they just give up. And we then miss out on this huge body of what God has to say and really is responsible for hope being alive within us. Uh, Really, hope comes from the promises that God makes about our future. It's about the promises of God. The Bible is about the promises of God. And uh, it's about uh, the nation of Israel. It's about the land of Israel, which is on our TVs 24-7, you know, uh, in our family rooms probably today. You know, this goes all the way back to Genesis. And it's been an issue. And it's uh, right front and center. How do we understand what's going on? It's about a world savior named Jesus who came to us uh, through God's chosen people. And so... Last time we were together, we're thinking from Daniel chapter 9, because Daniel gives us a chronological uh, expose of how God is dealing with Israel. And uh, remember, Daniel talks about 490 years from the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians came and exported the uh, Israelites, and uh, the angel Gabriel comes, you know, and explains to Daniel that there's going to be 490 years in which God is going to do six things with the nation of Israel. And uh, we, you know, studied that passage and we found out that um, Daniel accounts for 483 of those years. And if you do the math, you actually, uh, from the time that people were in Babylon, 483 years, fast forward, and you come actually to the exact week between when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and him going to the cross on that Good Friday. And so uh, the, the math is really incredible, uh, very uh, you know, true and very real. And uh, then Daniel says, you know, and at the end of Jesus dying on the cross, you know, he will have nothing. You know how the Bible says he came to his own and his own received him not. He came to the Jewish people to be their Messiah, to be their Savior, And uh, he was cut off, and he has nothing with them. And so uh, then we take it off from there. So 483 years have gone by in which God has been dealing with Israel, and then there's one seven-year period that's left, right, in which God says he'll be finished, and uh, then things will move forward. 
But there's this seven-year period of time, which uh, is in the scriptures uh, often called the 70th week of Daniel. And there's a gap, right, between the 69th and the 70th week in which we are now living. It's the period of time between Christmas, the first coming of Jesus, and the return of Christ. It's this gap in which, uh, you know, there are a number of things happening according to Scripture, this period of time that we're living in right now. Uh, The Bible calls it, in Ephesians, um, the mystery of the gospel. It's kind of interesting. In Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 2, the Apostle Paul says this. He's assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, Paul, for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Remember, a mystery is something that's in the mind of God from the beginning of time, but not revealed until God is ready to let people know of what it is that's in his mind. That's a mystery. And so Paul says, you know, God revealed to me this next step in his plan, uh, the mystery. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, uh, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. This great plan of God was eventually that the Jewish people would, in fact, he knew that they would reject Jesus, and his plan was then to invite into his chosen people all of us Gentiles who would uh, put our faith in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did. And so I think it becomes uh, incumbent upon us uh, to uh, factor this in when we have our worldview, try to understand who we are, where we're at in history, and uh, put together our own existence. I think Paul explains it even further in um, Romans chapter 11, verse 7 and 8. He says, well, what then? Has Israel failed to obtain what they were seeking? The elect obtained it, but uh, the rest were hardened. As it is written, Paul says, God gave them, God gave them, God gave them, the Jewish people, a spirit, right, of stupor for our benefit. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Why? So that we, the Gentiles, might be folded in. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, Paul says, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this way, all Israel will be saved. How? The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob or Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. How's this going to happen? Jesus is going to come back. The deliverer is going to come. And uh, Israel is finally going to recognize him for who he is. Uh, If we go back to the Old Testament, how is this all going to end? It's kind of interesting. Uh, Zechariah, let me just read a couple of verses. Uh, God is revealing through the prophet Zechariah towards the end of the Old Testament. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding people. 
God's going to do this. I'm going to make Jerusalem a, a, a cup of staggering, right? And, uh, and then uh, verse 10, I'm going to pour out on the house of David, the nation of Israel, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace. God's going to do this, right? I'm going to pour out on the house of Israel a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, when those Jewish people look on Jesus, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, remember, through the sword, nailed him to the cross, crucify him, crucify him, the Jewish people said. When they look on me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for me as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. There is coming a day when all of a sudden the light's going to come on for the nation of Israel. That day hasn't happened yet. As we think about the nation of Israel today, it's a secular nation. But there is coming a day when the Lord comes back at the second coming when he will uh, finish the promises that he's made to that uh, nation. And then look what it says, uh, chapter 13. On that day, there will be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sins and uncleanness. What a great day that's going to be. There's going to be a day when the Jewish people are going to wake up and they're going to see Christ for who he really is, understand that he's their Messiah, repent, give themselves to him, and they'll be weeping like unbelievable for the fact that, you know what, we totally missed it first time around. And why did we miss it first time around? Well, because we didn't really pay attention to the scriptures, did we? Do you know there's over 300 prophetic uh, scriptures in the Old Testament about the first coming, about Christmas, about Jesus coming the first time. There are over 50 different specific literal truths that were revealed way before he came so that people wouldn't miss it. And for every prophecy, I've said this, right? This blows my mind. I'm, I'm sorry if, you know, I repeat it again. But for every prophecy about Christmas, there's eight prophecies about Jesus' return. And I'm scared that people are going to miss it. I'm scared that we can't interpret, like, what's going on with Israel now and sort of figure out, like, well, where are we at? And what's, and are, you know, well, obviously we're getting closer to Jesus coming back. And that's when all these great promises, you know, people who have died rise from the dead. People who are sick are healed. Uh, people who have lived, you know, terrible, broken lives are brought together. No more crying, no more pain. When does all that happen? Well, that happens when Jesus comes back. And how sad it would be to live without the hope that I think God wants to give us as a result of knowing what's coming. So, um, can I just say, you know, it's so important how we treat the Bible and allow it to shape our thoughts and allow it to uh, define our worldview. And I think uh, it's important... Um, to allow the scriptures to be first in influencing the way we think. If we form opinions ahead of time based on something else, ideas that we had when we were growing up, traditions, other people's ideas, books, college professors, and then we go to the Bible for support, I think we can end up way off track. But you know why? Because uh, the, as, as history unfolds, more and more things happen that bring light to the scriptures. Like in 1948, 
right? When Israel became a state again, all of a sudden, a lot of people changed the way they thought because prior to that, a lot of people thought, well, that'll never happen. It's never happened in history before. Excuse me. It's never happened in history before. That can never happen. And so we'll, we'll change our understanding of the passage. And we won't let it say what it really says. And, uh, and then in 1948, when Israel became a state again and was recognized by the world and so on, uh, all of a sudden, you know, people changed their uh, books. They had to rewrite the book. And um, because guess what? It, what God said literally was true. All that to say, there are some principles that when we try to understand prophetic scripture, there are some principles that are important to bring to our study of the Bible. And so let me just share a couple of these. First of all, I want to say the Bible was written to be understood. You have a copy of the Bible. uh, You want to understand it. And, uh, you know, there are portions of it that I don't understand. There are portions of it that we don't understand. But we keep working at it, and we keep comparing Scripture with Scripture. And uh, all of a sudden, kind of like Josh said in his testimony, you know, the light comes on. As you're a kid, you're learning these Scriptures, you're memorizing verses, And then as you mature and you kind of get into the world and you see it, all of a sudden you realize, wow, God was right. God told me the truth. All of a sudden those scriptures come to life. And all of a sudden they mean something much deeper. And same thing with prophetic scripture. So the Bible was written to be understood. It's what Martin Luther called the literal interpretation of the scriptures. And uh, really this was the motivation behind the whole Reformation. Um, is that uh, Martin Luther uh, took the scriptures at face value and uh, believed what they said, and it began this whole separation of the Protestant movement away from uh, the Roman Catholic Church, and we had the Reformation. And so it's, it's the principle that the Bible should be understood in its natural, normal sense and should be taken at face value or taken literally Allowing, of course, for figures of speech. Almost every time in the Bible there's a figure of speech, it's explained. Um, You know, like a figure of speech might be a parable. You know, Jesus says to the disciples, well, a farmer went out and he sowed seed, you know, and it fell on four different kinds of ground. And and the disciples are like, what are you talking about? You know, so Jesus says, sit down, guys. Uh, The seed is the word of God. The four different kinds of soil are the hearts of four different kinds of people. And he explains the whole thing. And usually when there's uh, a figure of speech, the Bible goes on to explain uh, what is actually meant. But in its normal uh, face value kind of uh, understanding. And so in prophecy, um, Jesus' first coming, right? Like I said, there was over 50 different specific concrete Um, uh, prophecies about his birth, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection, all of which were fulfilled literally. Now, we have the privilege from our point of view, we can look back from where we're living now, back into the Old Testament after all these, his first coming, and see how these things were exactly, he was born in Bethlehem, just like it said, rode a donkey into Jerusalem, just like the Old Testament prophesied. These are all literal kinds of things. Now, the opposite of this principle is to approach the Bible uh, with speculation, and it ends in uh, what's called allegory, and allegory is the idea that assumes 
that there's something really deep and spiritual that's hidden behind the actual literal words on the face of things. So with allegory, you can come up with all kinds of fanciful interpretations about what the Bible's talking about. And it usually happens when uh, people say, well, I think this means. And uh, the truth is, you know, um, no offense, but we don't really care what you think this means. Because guess what? God is the author of this book. And what we really want to know, what does God mean when he says this? What does God mean? Uh, Allegory, I think, you know, the difference between a face value kind of interpretation of Scripture. And by the way, uh, this church has lots of opportunities for really great Bible studies. And it starts with Bible study. And uh, if you're not doing so, you should take advantage of, you know, uh, one or two of these different uh, Bible studies. But the idea, I think, that it comes down to is that... um, To determine the meaning, uh, a face value uh, understanding of a passage of scripture were after what the author, ultimately God, meant by saying what he said. That's what we're trying to find out. In allegory, uh, sort of the opposite of that, uh, it's where the reader determines the interpretation rather than the writer determining the interpretation, right? And uh, so the first principle is that, you know, scripture is to be uh, understood in its face value, literal. Why would we think that when, when the Bible talked about Christmas and the first coming of Jesus in such literal ways and literal prophecies that were fulfilled, that we have the privilege of seeing uh, fulfilled in the New Testament, why would we think that God would talk differently when it comes to the second coming? That he would hide things from us rather than reveal things to us about what to be looking for and what to be uh, going after. So the first principle, I would just say, is a face value interpretation. Second, um, I would uh, say that a second principle when it comes to studying the scriptures is that every text has a context. Every text has a context, right? Every verse of scripture is part of a bigger portion of scripture. Have you ever had this happen to you where somebody tells you something about somebody and you form an opinion about that person and then you meet the person and your opinion changes? Have you ever had that? You ever had a verse of scripture and you think it means something and then you read the context and all of a sudden you realize, oh, it doesn't mean that. It fits into this context. When I was younger, um, at the beginning of my ministry, I had a a woman who started coming to our church and she said, can I get together and talk to you? I'm like, sure. So we set an appointment, you know, and she sits down and she starts telling me what a horrible person her husband is. I mean, she's going on and on and on. And uh, I'm like, nobody could be this bad. I just, you know. So finally, when she got done, I said, "Uh, well, can I have his phone number? I'd like to call him and meet with him. Oh, she said, he'll never meet with you. You know, I'm like, well, I'd like to try. I'd like to just introduce myself, tell him you came here. And, you know, we're talking about him. And so I thought I should call him. And, you know, so she gives me his phone number. I call the guy up and I say, hey, your wife came to see me. I'm pastor of the church, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and uh, I said, I'd like to talk to you. He said, all right, when? So uh, I said, uh, set a date and he came and the guy came and he, he had a jacket on. I'll never forget this, right? He Walked into my office, you know, and I said, hey, have a seat. And he had a jacket on. He pulled a gun out of the jacket pocket. 
And I had a little uh, filing cabinet next to the chair he was sitting on. He put the gun on top of the uh, filing cabinet, and he folded his arms like this, and he said, so what are you going to tell me? All right? And being the courageous pastor that I was, I said, anything you want me to say. (laughs) Well, we got talking, and it turned out he worked for the fire department. My dad was a volunteer fireman my whole life, and we started to hit it off on common things. We became friends. The poor, when I heard his story about how he grew up and what happened, my opinion of him totally changed because all of a sudden I had a context. And you can't take a verse of scripture out of its context and just form a whole theological idea without putting it in its context and saying, you know, I like to ask this, I call it the $6 million question. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Who's talking here? Is this God talking or man talking? Who is, who are they talking to? Are you talking to believers or are you talking to unbelievers? You're talking to Jews, you're talking to Gentiles. Who are you talking to here? Who? What? What's actually being said? Try to rephrase in your own words. What's being said here? What's being, what's God trying to say? Who, what, when? You know, when is this for? Is this in the past? Is this in the future? Is this for today? Is this for, you know, when Jesus comes back? Who, what, when, where? You know, and you ask those six million dollars of any question, any scripture, and it starts to come to life. It starts to pop out. Uh, All right. Third principle when we approach the Bible is uh, simply to accept the fact that scripture is its own best commentary. You know, if God is the author of the whole thing, then there's no contradictions. And uh, one scripture is going to say the same thing and is going to enlighten the other scripture. And all of those scriptures, when we study the scripture, uh, we understand that scripture is its own best commentary. And my understanding of any passage of scripture should not contradict any other passage of scripture where God's talking about the same subject. Um, And then fourth... uh, I think when it comes to prophetic scripture, uh, especially, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there's often uh, what theologians call a near-far application. A near-far application. In other words, uh, part of what's being said will be for right now, and then part of what's being said will be for the distant future. And uh, it's kind of interesting to kind of study scripture. Let me just... I'll, I'll end with this, but um, in Isaiah, you know, in a, in a few weeks or so, you're going to start getting Christmas cards, and they're going to say things uh, like this. Uh, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Jewish people. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, Gentiles, on them a light has shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, Christmas. And the government is going to be on his shoulders. Has that happened yet? Is Jesus governing our world? No, second coming. See how in the first part, you know, if you take the first and second coming and you apply that to different another place where Jesus said this, you know, when Jesus first started his ministry in Luke chapter 4, Jesus quoted Isaiah 61. And uh, 
to, to explain to people who he was and what he was here to do. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prisons to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Boom, Jesus rolled up the scroll, put it back and stopped. But the passage that he was quoting doesn't stop. It goes right on to talk about his return and his second coming. And the day of, it says, you know, uh, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Second coming, day of the Lord, right? And Jesus stops right in the middle of the quoting the passage. Why? Because he's talking about his first coming. And this is why I'm here for this period of time, these 30 years. But I'm coming back and here's what's going to happen when I come back and so on and so forth. So uh, the number of different things, uh, really God uh, you know, just wants us to be alert I think, to what's going on and to what he's revealed, to study his word. And, uh, you know, there was a time when Jesus was here the first time and he said to the Pharisees, uh, I think it's Matthew 16, he said, you know, you guys have a great way of predicting the weather, but you can't discern the times. The Messiah is here with you and you don't get it. You're missing it. I'm right here with you. And think, I think about in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, think about how much better we are at predicting the weather. But do we discern the times that we're actually living in? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just uh, are so thankful again that you have given us your word. That, and we, especially living at this particular point in history, we can look back and see how your word was so precisely uh, fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus And so when we think about the second coming and we think about the promises that are associated with it and we think about the hope, Father, how how easy it is for us to become hopeless in the midst of our world, I pray, Father, that we would uh, grab hold of these promises, understand them in such a way that they would produce the kind of hope that you uh, have revealed for us so that we might live with that kind of confidence based on what you've promised us in Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.